1: Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21.
2: You know, what is it about Maris Otter that, you know, creates kind of a special product? Is it the location? Is it the genetics associated with it? You know, And how can we you know, manipulate some of those things?
0: This week on the show, a collaboration between OSU's Barley Project, Admiral Maltings, and Seismic Brewing explores the possibility for achieving Maris Otter flavor in newer barley varieties bred for better agronomics and brew house performance.
2: Hey, this is Campbell Morrissey. I'm the head brewer at Freem Family Brewers here in Hood River, Oregon. I'm also a PhD candidate working under Dr. Pat Hayes in the Oregon State University Barley Project Lab.
3: Yeah, hi, it's Curtis Davenport, um, the head maltster and co-founder at Admiral Maltings in Alameda, California. You gave a presentation not too long ago
0: to District Northwest, the title of which was Romp of Otters potential for updated heirloom barley varieties and impact on base malt and beer flavor. What exactly do you mean by updated heirloom varieties?
2: Yeah, great question. So when brewers are thinking about malt, you know, they're often thinking about the malt type and rarely are they thinking about the barley variety that is actually in that malt, um, be it a single variety or a blend of varieties. Um, You know, A lot of people do know a handful of varieties such as, you know, some of the heirlooms like Golden Promise and Maris Otter. You know, these are sold based on their reputation for being flavorful. Uh, However, we don't really understand quite yet what that flavor impact is from barley variety. And we wanted to see after a host of studies, what would happen if we essentially crossed contemporary malting lines with some of these heirloom varieties? Could we cross in the contemporary agronomic attributes, the contemporary malt quality? With some of those flavorful uh, notes, to see if we could get some of these updated heirlooms that were of interest to kind of all members of the supply chain.
0: I think most brewers have, are probably have at least heard about Maris Otter or are familiar with it. But tell us a little bit about Maris Otter. What's what's so special about it?
2: Maris Otter is definitely an interesting variety. You know, it was probably the most widely planted winter barley in. Or winter malting barley specifically in the UK, really from the sixties to the eighties, um, which is a pretty long run for any variety. Um, about 1989, it was delisted by their organization, uh, similar to our Amba, uh, but it kind of still maintained a reputation among traditional ale brewers, um, and you know that kind of tied into the rise of the craft brewing industry in the U.S. And I think a lot of a lot of brewers in the you know in the nineties were looking at Maris Otter as kind of a perfect malt for. For doing some of these single infusion ale mashes. Um, So it was, you know, it had some of these low, low modification uh, attributes that we're kind of we think of when we're thinking of ale brewing, um, but does really well without a step mash. So it maintained its own, its own kind of provenance through that.
0: We're here to talk about what is sort of part two of the work you've done on this subject. Before we do that, catch us up on part one.
2: Absolutely. So part one used a selection of these novel crosses. Uh, we took four lines uh, that were wintered down from original 47. Uh, these are double haploid lines that are developed off crosses um, from either Violetta and Maris Otter or an experimental line from a German outfit, 0402836. These are contemporary malting lines. Um, you know, Violetta is amber listed and the other is uh, kind of within that elite malting pipeline. And so we use the established, what we call the flavor pipeline here. Um, this has kind of been developed uh, since you know the Herb et al. papers in 2017. And they take malting through brewing and hot steep, do uh, hot steep and beer sensory, as well as hot steep and beer chemical profiling. And we applied that to this selection of Marisata crosses, as well as a control.
0: Okay. Talk more about that flavor pipeline and sort of... Um uh the value of it i mean this is a way to sort of like really just get a a better look at a variety's potential faster sort of uh
2: not necessarily faster uh what it allows us to do is to kind of attack it from all angles so to speak okay um so we're able to do um
0: so you don't sort of just get to the end of this okay we have the agronomic figured out now let's look at is this any good in the brewery
2: Uh, certainly you know we want to see kind of how does it perform in a hot steep sensory analysis which is a relatively new tool for doing malt sensory Um, it's very rapid we're still developing kind of an understanding of the use of that tool both from a research and a production standpoint Um, the interest in it is it's very rapid Um, so yes to your point earlier it could be used um, for you know rapid sensory analysis of barley lines in a breeding program Um, something that you know Malting and brewing can be, especially at scale, can be quite expensive and just limiting if you don't have enough seed. So doing something on a hot steep with 50 grams can be very advantageous. Um, but we also wanted to couple that with metabolomics and actually look at the volatile and non-volatile chemical profile of both the hot steeps and beers and try to see if there's potential markers in there that could be used for identification of novel lines or just understanding kind of where some of these flavor differences are being driven from.
0: Talk about sort of the the results of what you observed um, in part one.
2: Um, so what we did find is that um, we saw much more separation between hot steep than we did in beers. Um, there was some notable differences from control, um, as well as some descriptive analysis differences. We did see some differences in chemical profiling, uh, but we got into the beer sensory. We really started to see that those differences were pretty muted, um, with only one significant line or one significantly different line, and so. What we started wondering is, okay, well, we're seeing kind of slight differences. This is confirming some of the early work that barley variety does contribute to beer flavor. But we found that it's fairly nuanced um, and that you know, maybe, maybe it's washed um, in some of these kind of research type malts and beers. Um, we call them research types. They're usually very low color malts um, designed to kind of be assessed for malt quality versus necessarily set, you know, used in a production environment. Um, and then research beers, they were very low hopped, uh, single malt, no, no specialty malts at all, and just using kind of a very light bittering addition um, just to kind of round out the flavor profile of that. And so once we found that, we started thinking about like kind of what is the next step? And you know we still wanted to see if there was something here, um, but we knew we couldn't do it in the, in the normal pipeline.
0: I wanted to mention that also. Uh, unfortunately, you weren't allowed to use Maris Otter as a control in those trials. Do you want to say anything about that?
2: Absolutely. So, um, unfortunately, Maris Otter is uh, solely licensed to be sold as seed to growers only in the UK. Um, it can only be exported as malt, um, and so because of that, you know, we were unable to plant it here in Oregon um, and get any uh, any growth in our own in our own fields or in some of our trial plots. Um, to use as the true control, um, we did use uh, some of the low color Maris Otter commercial samples um, to kind of calibrate our hot steep sensory. Unfortunately, we didn't bring in any for uh, larger brewing trials. At a certain point, once you start adding in the variation of you know hugely different location, different malt house, um, for the size of this study, those results would have just been too hard to analyze.
0: What do you think you? might have observed if you had been able to include Maris Otter? And the reason I'm asking is because it seems like the answer to that may have been the inspiration behind part two.
2: Absolutely. Um, you know, we, from a personal interest standpoint, and I know a lot of people in our lab and working with Curtis and the folks down at Avril Maltings, you know, we really wanted to understand, you know, what is it about Maris Otter that, you know, creates kind of a special product? Um, you know, is it, is it the location? Is it the genetics associated with it? You know and how can we you know manipulate some of those things um, and so one of the one of the areas that we did have control on is well we could adjust the malting process um and talking to some of the folks who are involved with you know brokering marsota in the u k you know they kind of claim there's three there's three things associated with it outside of just the variety and that's the British maritime climate, the unique soil type that it's grown in, and then the floor malting process um and so knowing that we had a great partner in admiral and that you know they're one of the largest floor maltsters in the US, if not the largest. Uh, We decided to work on a collaboration for the follow-up study to see what was the impact of floor malting on some of these novel lines.
0: Cool. I assume Maris Otter is exclusively floor malted now, but Do we know if it was ever malted with a pneumatic system back before it became a controlled variety when it was, you know, more widely uh, grown? Uh, I figure there's got to be somebody out there who can attest to the flavor profile of Maris Otter when it's not floor malted.
2: Actually, uh, absolutely. Uh, So most of Maris Otter now is pneumatic malted um, just from a scale standpoint. Um, There are still... Malt, malt houses, uh, large and small in the UK, that are offering floor-malted marisotter. Um, you know, floor malting is fairly niche. No offense, Curtis. Uh,
3: but, <laughs> None taken. I'm well aware. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, and um, they actually... Uh, Chris Malting and David Griggs, I believe he's their technical director, did a study looking at the chemical profile differences between floor-malted Otter and pneumatic-malted Otter, and found fairly significant differences um, in a in a host of metabolites including many that are driver, known drivers of flavor.
0: Okay, tell us more about the questions you wanted to answer for part 2.
2: So in the second in the second study we wanted to do you wanted to answer three specific questions uh, somewhat different from each other. The first was can an experimental floor malting protocol be used to adequately assess these lines? Second was can we floor malt the the top otter? This is the best agronomic performer and pull through more of the unique flavors associated with marisotter in both malt and beer. And then finally, does a winter habit barley line grown in the same environment as a spring habit perform as well or better for the maltster than their spring-planted CDC Copeland?
0: All right, so let's get after that first question there. Were you able to develop a micro malting equivalent to floor malting and had nobody really ever done this before?
2: So what we did was actually take a little bit of the work that Curtis has already done at Admiral Maltings on some of their you know, in-house assessments um, and developed what we're calling a, a mini-malting protocol. Um, in the paper that we've submitted to the MBAA, we define this a little more clearly, but just quickly here, um, we define micro-scale malting as anything less than one kilo. Um, that's what we do. One of the tools we have in-house at OSU is our 500-gram micro-malter. Mini malting, we called less than 150 kilos. Um, And so we have a pneumatic malter at OSU, and then we developed a mini malting protocol at Admiral. And then finally, we have plant scale, and that's just simply the commercial scale malts that they're doing at Admiral.
0: All right. Excellent. Talk more about what that, um, I guess, mini, uh, what it actually looks like.
2: Uh, I'm going to pass that one off to Curtis, since he was the one who actually did the hands-on work there.
3: Sure. Um, yeah, so the, the mini floor malting, um, it's, uh, (coughs) essentially, um, steeping in, I think we described in the Campbell describes in the paper as polyethylene tub, also known as a, a brute bin. Um, so steeping is in, um, two brute bins. One of them's got uh, holes drilled in the, in the bottom as a false bottom. Um, so that the water can drain out. Um, and then after steeping, it's spread onto a, a dedicated um, separate portion of our, our germination floor. Um, it's spread at the same depth as the a, a typical commercial batch. Um, and then for kilning, um, it's kilned at the same time um, as a commercial batch of the same kilning profile. Um, so we have some stainless steel um, perforated cylinders um, that we put inside of the kiln to separate out that, um, smaller mini batch. And we have some of those in different sizes so we can adjust, uh, based on, um, what barley we have available. And so then it's kilned at the exact same time. It's, it's in the same conditions, um, as the commercial batch.
0: Tell us about the sensory results that you actually observed when you look at that commercial scale versus, versus mini.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing we wanted to do was make sure that our mini malting protocol was close enough to plant scale to feel like we could get a- accurate results of you know representative sample of the, the larger hole. And so we did hot steep sensory be- uh, between malt scale. So we took a, the commercial batch of the floor malted maiden voyage. Uh, that's Admiral's British pale type malt uh, that we malted, used the mini malting protocol or based the mini malting protocol off of And then we compared that to the CDC Copeland mini floor malted. So same variety, you know, same overall malting protocol, just different scale. Um, And we found really tight results there. And we're really pleased knowing that, okay, we have a good protocol. We know that we can assess these malts kind of successfully throughout this system, knowing that there's not a huge amount of variation on kind of a really screwed up malting protocol that was going to create a bunch of noise um, and kind of make these results hard to interpret. So that was the first thing we did. And, you know, we had no significant attributes um, or no significantly different attributes in the uh, descriptive analysis. And so we were confident to be able to move on into some subsequent sensory.
0: Okay, let's hear about that.
2: So the next thing we wanted to do was we first wanted to see how the malting protocol differed from the pneumatic. Um, So we had samples of micro-malted pneumatic DH 142010. This is the experimental line used in this work. Um, and we found very, you know, we found some some differences. Um, the challenge with this was that we had such little sample of the micromalted remaining from the previous year that I could only get 14 replicates. Um, so there'll be some graphical representation shown in the final paper, but we did see, you know, kind of a, a very different mapping on a radar plot. But because of that low sample size, only one of them actually plotted as significant. Um, This is not too surprising. you know, Based on what a lot of people know is that floor malt is typically different than pneumatic malt, even with different varieties. And that kind of confirms the chemical profiling that Griggs reported uh, that pneumatic and floor malted really create a different product, even if they were malted kind of to similar type. And then so lastly, we wanted to compare the mini floor malts made with Copeland and the experimental. And what we found is that these actually mapped almost identically. So this was really similar results to what we saw between the Copeland floor mini and the commercial, the plant scale batch. Um, And so what we're finding here is that floor malting may be a real powerful tool, and it might be something that kind of of washes a lot of flavor variety differences. And so something that we're going to have to explore a little bit more, but just in a hot steep analysis, um, finding that malting protocol was the biggest driver of sensory outcome.
3: coming up it's another challenging year in tule lake you know this field it's already got a head start it's already got a lot of water um, that it's had access to from the winter snow and rain even though it's been a um, another dry year so yeah i'm really excited to see how that field turns out
0: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support.
1: Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. We all know that the best brewing results come from the best ingredients. BSG offers the largest variety of quality ingredients to create outstanding beers. BSG brings the best malt, hops, and additives from around the world to your brew house. Their knowledgeable and dedicated staff comes from the brewing industry and can assist you in product consultation for your recipe formulation. Contact your dedicated sales or customer support rep or become a customer at bsgcraft.com slash customer
0: Are you looking to improve yield quality and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience offering centrifuges, de systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. But the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us slash mbaa to learn more. Thank you to Brewing with Enzymes by Novazymes For commercial brewers, enzymes can ease filtration, eliminate diacetyl rest, meet attenuation targets, and optimize your raw materials to save on labor. If you're curious to learn more, head over to brewingwithenzymes.com and get 50% off with your first order using discount code MBAA. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Northwest meets May 20th and 21st in beautiful Hood River. District Eastern Canada meets in Montreal May 24th. Don't miss the Master Brewers webinar, How Will Climate Change Affect the Brewing Industry, May 31st. Lab on the Cheap, another Master Brewers webinar, June 8th. I can highly recommend the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course, which starts July 8th in Madison, Wisconsin. The 2022 Brewing Summit, that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. Let's answer that second question. Which line was the top otter and what happened when you floor malted it?
2: Absolutely. So, uh, as I mentioned in the first study, we selected four of an original 47. Um, those were selected over a few different years through field trials primarily. So, looking for agronomic performance such as yield, grain protein, as well as disease um, and environmental you know, stress resistance. And so, from the four, knowing that we kind of wanted to do this Uh, bridging study to see kind of what the power of floor malting is, we selected the one that was the top agronomic performer of those four, and that was DH142010. And then once we actually put it through the floor malting, um, we found that it actually performed pretty well. Um, When we did malt quality analysis on both the mini floor malts and the commercial batch, um, we found that the O&O had the highest extract, um, as well as kind of the the most moderate protein modification relative to the others, and so that was kind of interesting. You know, we know Copeland is a, a variety for commercial brewing, but kind of seeing how the O and O is a little more uh, able to be tempered. Um, you know, controlling some steep out moisture. Not only does it did we think it performed pretty well here, but we also feel that maybe in the future it could have some potential um, for a little more manipulation to kind of get those those lower proteolytic modification numbers.
0: And the results really weren't terribly different between the mini and the and the floor.
2: Uh, no. So we actually saw a little little more over modification for the when comparing the two batches made with Copeland, the mini and the comer- and the plant scale. We found that there was a little more protein modification. Um, you know, the steep out moistures were a little higher. I know Curtis can talk a little bit more about kind of that protocol differences, uh, but we did see some increased um, S over T and fan in particular. Um, for the Copeland Mini?
3: Yeah, I, th- I think something that we um, noticed was that the the mini floor malting protocol probably lends itself to a more modified malt. Um, it's just a little bit harder to control the steep out moisture. Um, and what we saw is that the the top otter um, was able to handle that um, better. It was, uh, you know, I think it would, you know, there, I think there would always be an improvement from the mini floor malting um, you know, maybe have a little bit more control in our commercial um, floor malting process, and so if the if the top otter did well in the mini floor malt, I would expect it to perform even better um, at a commercial level.
2: One other thing I would add to that is um, not you know in the in the big study we did, we did uh, send off some uh, a commercial sample of floor malted maris otter. Um, you know, this is you know, per, a purchased sample. Um, and we sent it off to the same malt quality analysis lab to just see what kind of, what it, how it compared. Um, and I think you know there's a lot of assumption, um, especially with craft brewing, is that you know all of our malts should be extremely low S over T, low fan, um, and you know th- that's kind of some of the ideal targets for us uh, as craft brewers. I mean we were really surprised to see the uh, commercial floor malted Maris Otter come in at you know almost fifty percent S over T. I guess uh, looking at it forty eight point one percent S over T and And 215 fan. Um, It was actually the second highest fan of the four samples.
0: Explain the setup for that last question.
2: Yeah, so the last question we wanted to ask was how does winter barley uh, perform in the Tule Lake region of Northern California? Um, So this is the area that I know Admiral sources a lot of their malt from. Um, This is an area that's undergone a lot of drought stress in the last few years. And generally, we know that winter habit lines are. A little more suited for a drought-prone environment because when they need their water is usually when water is more available. Um, so this is te- typically timed with you know springs, spring spring snowmelt versus kind of like getting into heat of summer. And so one of the you know that third question we wanted to know is that if we were to plant winter habit barley in Thule Lake, would we produce malt and you know eventually beers that would be acceptable to both the maltster and brewer?
0: And on what kind of scale did you do that?
2: Um, so we, so this was grown in a kind of a drill strip, one acre drill strip. Um,
0: like a test plot type of situation. It's a little bigger
2: than a test plot, um, just so we can get enough suitable seed. Um, we ne- usually need about you know five hundred pounds of seed to make sure that we'll have enough for replanting, micro malting trials, as well as you know our standard this mini malting experiment. Um, and I think Curtis can speak a little bit more about the uh, challenges in Tule Lake and kind of their relationship with some of the growers there.
3: I bet he can. Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as, um, as Campbell mentioned, you know, the um, something we're really interested in, in, um, in winter uh, barleys is their, their drought tolerance and just their lower um, water use requirement. Um, so uh, there was some some really great timing um, with the study where we had a um, a customer of ours kind of inquire about um, heirloom malts specifically uh, Maris Otter and Golden Promise, um, and we had kind of uh, described to them the the reasons why North American maltsters um, don't use uh, Maris Otter barley and why it's not grown in North America or especially in California. Um, and but at the same time um and and we are familiar with the work that um Oregon State was doing um and so we kind of came to them uh, after the the romp 1.0 paper was um was finished up and uh, Campbell was ready for taking that to um producing further work on on the topic and um we were really really interested um but at the same time we we're uh faced with um you know, some real challenges in California agriculture where irrigated agriculture is just, um, at its, you know, the extent to which, um, ag in California relies on irrigation is you know, kind of incompatible with, with ecological health in a lot of regions. Um, and so for us, we are looking for, um, a way to, to have farmers produce barley with less water and winter barley seems like a, a great start for that.
0: So, tell us more about those
3: uh,
0: field trials. What did the agronomic results look like um, on your first attempt at that?
2: So, our agronomics looked really good um, coming out of Tule Lake, and we've been collaborating with uh, the UC Davis Extension Center up there for a long time, and so we have experience growing winter barley in their field trials uh, year over year. Um, and so, getting seeing this, you know, some of these results weren't too surprising. You know, we didn't go into this totally blind. <laughs> uh, and what we found is that the O&O o did really well. Um, it <clears throat> was kind of moderate protein, 10.5%, um, nice, nice test weight, good plumps, um, good fins, um, and had really high germination energy. So from that standpoint, you know, we thought this was, that was kind of successful there. Um, and relative to the Copeland, you know, Copeland came in a little higher protein, um, not too surprising based on the variety, um, but really suffered um, due to some of that summer heat last year and the lower rainfall. Um. Even under irrigated conditions, um, it was you know about only about eighty percent plump um, and almost four percent thin, and so, you know, those are some indications of some st- real stress during grain fill.
0: All right. So, um, all this uh, field trial uh, barley ended up in uh, actual beer. Talk uh, Talk about that a little bit. What was the process like to um, get this into uh, process into beers that we could evaluate?
2: Yeah. Thankfully. Uh, Curtis and Admiral Malt has a really tight connection with a lot of the con- uh, customers in Northern California and so put us in touch with seismic brewing up in Santa Rosa who happen to have a 60 liter pilot system which is perfectly sized for our mini malt batches um, one are the goals uh, that we wanted to come out of from our, our our first study was we also wanted to see how these things would do in kind of more commercial type beers you know we weren't going to make something crazy like a you know double dry hop tazy IPA um, and just have that much noise um but we wanted to kind of move away from these very research focused beers and kind of create something that would be more similar to what you'd expect to see on a on a draft list and so we're
0: i'm guessing seismic probably didn't want to make a research beer either yeah you know they probably
2: <laughs> they still wanted to like you know, drink something too Right. <laughs> Those research right. beers not that great um so we came up with a kind of just a a pretty a pretty basic um you know, Hellas style lager was kind of what we, what they decided on. Um, but they included a little bit of specialty malt in there. It uh, was about 5% uh, and, you know, brewed it to all their lager specifications um, and then hopped it um, as they would for kind of, you know, a little higher dry, a little higher like flame out hopping um, just to give a little more aromatic character. And we really, at a certain point we need to find out, you know, we know that there's barley variety contribution of beer flavor. We know it's nuanced. Um, and ultimately, if it's going to be of real interest um, within the supply chain, you know, we want to see how these, how these perform in real beers.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about those beers that Seismic brewed for you.
2: Yeah. So we put the beers through sensory um, using the frame Brewing Sensory Panel. Um, that was a real you know, nice, nice ability to have that kind of wearing that hat. I can also take advantage of our sensory panel. And so we ran these through and thankfully we had enough sample to generate a bit more sample size. Um, but what we found is, you know, we found a couple significant differences. Um, so certainly more than we found in the hot steeps. Um, we found that the the descriptors vegetal and butter were significantly different. Um, and that was pretty interesting, uh, considering especially on the butter one, you know, obviously, everyone's gonna be like, oh, it's probably just full of diacetyl. Um, well, the diacetyl numbers were within five ppb of each other. And actually, the one that scored higher had the slightly lower diacetyl level. Um, and both of those levels were fairly low. So we were definitely seeing that you know something's driving flavor around that. However, when we actually put them into a preference test, there was no significant preference. Um, so neither the Copeland nor the experimental um, pre- created a beer that was more preferred.
0: What other big takeaways are there here, and, and what's next?
2: You know, so the big takeaways here is that we know that we have a, a protocol for malting out al- or for. You know, mini malting on a floor malting scale that could be really useful uh, for, you know, Curtis and his team and others to kind of evaluate new lines. Um, you know, especially as we start looking at, you know, different growth habits uh, in Tule Lake or bringing in things that might not necessarily be amble recommended. You know, it's nice to have this protocol so that you can actually run things through your uh, system, but, you know, obviously not putting in a, you know, 10,000 pound batch and just seeing how it goes. So that was kind of step number one. And we've, feel like we're pretty successful there um while we didn't find significant differences uh a significant preference between the beers and only a couple significant differences it also said you know hey this experimental line did pretty well you know admiral is pretty happy with their maiden voyage malt right now um using a established line and all of a sudden you know we have this other line that produces pretty similar beer in the end of it so that was pretty exciting to see that Um, And it really also, you know, says that there is some potential in Thule Lake for winter planted
0: lines. That's got to be exciting for you, Curtis.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, This past fall, um, the same field station planted, um, I believe, about one to two acres of a a seed increase of this um, line, the the 010 line. Um, So we're really excited to be able to, um, after this coming harvest, um, do some more trials, uh, continue um dialing in that that mini malt protocol um and be able to have enough uh grain to work with to um, really start to tease out some of the some of the differences and um but I think it's most exciting to see how that field um performs agronomically. It's, it's another challenging year in Tule Lake. Um and so this you know this field it's already got a head start. It's already got a lot of water um that it's had access to from the winter snow and rain, even though it's been a um, another dry year, so yeah, I'm really excited to see how that um, how that field turns out, um, and see if those same uh, advantages over Copeland that we're seeing in the field trials um, if they bear out again this this season.
0: That was Campbell Morrissey and Curtis Davenport here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for a link to Campbell's District Northwest presentation and be on the lookout for his article in the next Master Brewers Technical Quarterly. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Mall, BSG. Gussamer, and precision fermentation. So please let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.